Good morning, church. Over the last six months, we've just told a tremendous story, which is the history of our faith. We told the story of waiting for God to come and to act in Advent. And then we celebrated with much joy that Jesus came to be God with us through the story of Christmas. We walked with Jesus, remembering together the ministry that he shared with his disciples as he challenged them and called them into a new way of being. And then we heard again the way that Jesus taught in parables about God's coming kingdom as he journeyed toward the cross in Lent. Then during Holy Week, we proclaimed the death that Jesus died and at Easter, the new life that he took up again. And we were told that great gospel story, which is good news for the whole world. Good news for the poor and indigenous people and women and the sinful. Good news for normal people like you and like me. Good news for whosoever. Then last week, Dr. Durasami reminded us of the story of Pentecost, which brought the spirit to empower people to live into God's mission wherever we are to realize God has called and equipped each of us to participate in good works for the sake of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Now, today, on this Trinity Sunday, we turn the page. We turn the page from the stories that have been, and we enter into the longest season of the church year, which is called Ordinary Time where we take that great gospel story from the first part of the year and we tell it again, but this time we tell it by our living. This is the time for the story of the church, the church as it has spread good news, as it had, has grown throughout the world, as it has healed the sick and provided for the needy, as it has joined Jesus in freeing captives and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, and also the church as it has waned, and its story as it has struggled and lost its focus and even suffered greatly. So this summer, we'll be taking a look at the book of First Peter and listening to words spoken to some of the earliest Christians and considering again how those words speak to us today how they speak to us who have known much pain and sorrow, as well as how they speak to those of us who genuinely can't complain about our lives. We'll hear how one of the first disciples of Jesus, the one whom Jesus called the rock on whom he would build his church, speaks to that church and encourages them to know the living hope that is inside of them. My sense is, that we could use some hope. That's also what a few of the elders in our church said to me when I asked them what we should preach on next. It has been a wearying and tiresome year for all of us. Some of us have been confronted really for the first time about the evils of racism in our society. And for some of us who have been acquainted with that truth for as long as we can remember, it has felt like salt is being poured into a still fresh wound. Together, we have gone through this pandemic. Some of, some of us run ragged off our feet in hospital wards and nursing homes and grocery stores. 
others of us confined to shoeboxes in the sky for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Some of us have lost loved ones. All of us have been isolated from family. Together, we have been living in a province that has been called the lockdown capital of North America. And in the capital city of that province, we have been in some form of severe lockdown since November. As a church, we have foregone meeting together, not for lack of love for one another, but for the sake of our neighbors. And this too has taken a toll on many of our psyches. As well, we have experienced tremendous change in the leadership of our church, losing many people who have cared for us of, well for several years. And even in all of this, we are invited to hope. I should warn you, however, that this is not the trite hope of things will get better. Things will get better, but this hope is not a fainting or fickle hope. It is not the quaint hope that is cheaply chosen. Rather, this hope is the kind of hope that can be found when an innocent man chooses to die for the sake of others. It's a bittersweet hope. There is sorrow present in this hope that makes the hope that much stronger that much more worthwhile, that much more worth holding on to, that much more vibrant and alive. Peter writes to the exiles in Asia Minor. Peter, who is also known as the apostle to the Jews, writes to exiles in Gentile regions who may be Jewish converts to Christianity living outside of Judea, but are also likely churches filled with Gentile converts to Christianity. So then this exile is not the physical exile of the Old Testament. It is not that the Jewish Christians among them are exiles only because of their distance from Jerusalem. Rather, they are together, Jew and Gentile alike, exiles scattered among these provinces because none of those places that Peter names are the place that is intended as the home for God's people. Neither is the earthly Jerusalem. Rather, all of these places feel as though they are exile from the kingdom that we were made for, where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain, where God himself will be our light. The same is true for us in Canada and for you if you're joining our live stream from somewhere else in the world. None of the places where we are are the kingdom of God. Each of them may have glimpses of the kingdom, ways that they reflect the kingdom dimly today. But we are foreigners and exiles wherever we are enduring them for a short time with the dream of home still deep in our hearts. This is what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in this world until that day when all things are reconciled to him. For some reason, for some of us, it has been tremendously easy to conflate the places where we are and the place where God has promised we will yet be. 
A great example of this is a Bible that has been getting a lot of attention over the last couple of weeks, the God Bless the USA Bible, which intends to have within it both the text of the Bible and the text of the American Constitution bound together. Idolatry. The temptation to confuse kingdom and nation is far too present, not only with our neighbors to the south, but also here in Canada. And we are at risk of losing that core identity of exile in this world, meant for another place. That identity which helps us to put into focus so many of the struggles of following Jesus. But notice, it is not only the fact that they are exiles or the fact that they are located in these provinces, which Peter uses as the identifiers to address his hearers, to name who this letter is meant for. This letter is meant not only for exiles, not only for those located in these places, but it's also meant for people who he says are the chosen. Peter includes that chosenness as part of their identity as the listener. It is who they are. But not only are they who they are because they are chosen, they are also these very people because they are being sanctified by the Spirit. And not only are they chosen and being sanctified, but they are his hearers because they are becoming obedient to Christ and marked by his blood. That's quite the identity. That is a weighty address to put on the mail. That is the identity that we together are also called to join with alongside those original recipients of this letter as we hear it for ourselves. This letter is for you, you who are God's elect who are exiles scattered across Toronto, all of Canada, the United States, Chile, and Uganda. You who have been chosen by God, who are being sanctified by the Spirit. You who are becoming obedient to Christ and are marked with his blood. As followers of Jesus in this world, this is who you are. This letter is for you, and it begins with this grand and insightful proclamation of exactly who we ought to understand ourselves to be. This letter, it's to us. But I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that we find ourselves in a very different context and reality than the first recipients of this letter. We may share much of their identity, but not all of us share in suffering as they do. You see, we suffer the common suffering of all creation. We suffer illness, and we suffer want, and we suffer the pain of death and decay. But these things are not the suffering which Peter writes to address. No, we have to understand that Peter, he writes to women who suffer because they are women. He writes to slaves who suffer because they are slaves. He writes to minorities in a place that expects homogeny 
And he writes, because they are minorities. All of these people suffered because of who they were. And that suffering was made that much worse because they were also Christians. All slaves suffered, but Christian slaves, even more so. All people's lives were difficult in some manner or another, but the Christian life, it was difficult in a special way. And honestly, only some of us can relate to that reality today. Many of us still suffer and suffer because of who we are. Some of us still suffer because we are women, because we are a minority, because we are a worker subject to unjust labor practices. But not many of us suffer more because of our faith. This is not a reality which most of us who have only been Christians in the West are familiar with. It is a rare thing that being Christian disadvantages or causes the suffering of a person in Canada. It has often been quite the opposite. We are used to Christianity being privileged. And in fact, we are used to Christianity causing the suffering of others. A unique challenge for us who now read this text may be to wonder why it is that if Jesus' life produced such scorn from those around him, and the lives of these first Christians in the Roman Empire produce such suffering for them, why is it, and how is it, that we do not easily relate to that same experience? How can it be that so many generations of Jesus followers who have called our church home have not known this sort of suffering for the sake of the gospel? The reason, at least in part, is clear, though we may not always have the confidence or bravery to say it. The reason is that we have at times abandoned Christ for the sake of convenience, for the sake of power, and for the sake of comfort. This has been the story of the church in the West for so long, much longer than our church has existed and its effects are still being felt in the suffering of others. Even this week, we heard the news from the chief of the Tekemloops de Sekwepmek First Nation that a mass grave containing at least 215 children has been discovered at the Kamloops Indian Residential School. The school was closed in 1978, but it had been the largest residential school in the system and it was operated by the Roman Catholic Church. Children. Children who perhaps believed with innocence when they were told that Jesus loves them. Children who were far more children of the Father and exiles of that heavenly kingdom than those who by abuse or neglect killed them. Who for fear or lack of compassion, or even the smallest iota of respect for their families, hid the bodies in the ground, never to provide closure. And in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, 
who are still avoiding taking responsibility, refusing to participate in repentance and reconciliation, rather compounding a harm that has been done. Christians continuing to lean on power and in so doing, causing the suffering of others. No, far from Christians being persecuted, suffering because of their faith, the story of our nation truly has been the story of Christians cooperating with the secular government to cause the increased suffering of other groups. And this is seen most vividly in the history of residential schools, which our own denomination operated eight of in the years following 1925. It is still true that we are foreigners and exiles of God's kingdom, but perhaps we are even more so. Perhaps we are greater exiles further from that kingdom in deeper ways than we might dare to realize from these Christians who first received this letter. Perhaps we are exiles of our own choosing, making, and design. And as we explore 1 Peter deeper, we may find that we are not only invited to hold on to that living hope which is within us, but we are also invited uniquely in our context to rid ourselves of the dead and false hopes which we have allowed to grip our hearts, to stop seeking to build for ourselves a new home here, which has in fact become a kingdom of darkness and despair. Peter continues by writing, In God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Why should we rejoice? Too many read this passage and assume that we rejoice because of the inheritance which is promised to us. But I believe it is this searching for the inheritance, the prodigal church that has demanded its inheritance today, that has perhaps led us to this clinging to power forcing the submission of others, taking land and children and whatever else we might have desired over many years. It is not the inheritance which we ought to seek. The inheritance is a promise, yes, but it is not the reason for our joy. The reason for our joy, rather, is that living hope. And that living hope is made possible only through the resurrection of Jesus in the anticipation that he will one day return and at that time will welcome us most fully into his kingdom. Not a kingdom of our own making, not a home that we have built for ourselves on the backs of those who we could exercise power over, but rather a kingdom for those who have suffered as Christ suffered for the sake of Christ, chosen to relinquish power to be better witnesses to that tremendous gospel of our Lord, which is good news for all creation 
alike. This is what First Peter will invite us into, into suffering for the gospel most certainly. But if we will choose to join in that suffering, it also promises that then we will find within it a hope that is far more alive than anything else we have ever known. Because that hope is Jesus Christ himself. That hope is life itself. Jesus Christ who died yet lives and lives to bring to the full flourishing of all that will live in him. It was clear to Peter, writing from far away, that these suffering sisters and brothers of his, of ours, that these people loved Jesus. Loved Jesus even though they hadn't seen him, even though they didn't see him then in their suffering either. But they loved him and they believed in him. It was obvious in the lives that they lived that they were living as Christ, that the Spirit was working out their salvation even while they suffered, that they had great reason for joy and for hope. We too did not see Jesus in his earthly ministry, and we do not see him now. Yet, I imagine we would say that we love him, that we believe in him. And those claims mean something because they are verifiable by the lives that we live, lives of love marked by hardship, because we won't fit in the way that other people do. We won't be able to cling to power the way that other people do or use what privilege we have to our own advantage the way that other people do. The way of Jesus in this world is the harder way. It is the narrower path. And if our way is not the harder way, we must, we must ask ourselves if we are receiving the end result of our faith if we have found it within us to truly love Jesus more than we love the comforts we now know, to believe in him, our living hope, more than we believe in the dead hopes which have brought us so far from him. For you, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, you who by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit are being made obedient to Christ and marked by his blood, you who are exiles scattered in this world until our living hope reveals himself to us again, you are being invited to lean into the life of Christ, that in all of our living the truth of his gospel may be seen, that it may be experienced in the world by our actions, and that the genuineness of our faith may be proven and we may truly know the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We want to invite you into a time of reflection because we believe that the Holy Spirit continues to speak through God's word and, and speaks to each of us and all of us collectively. And so we'll give you a couple of minutes to reflect on maybe something you've heard the Spirit say to you particularly in this time, 
or if not, a couple of reflection questions to prompt your prayer or your journaling or your conversation. The first question is, what would it look like for you and for our whole church to live as if we are exiles even now? And the second question is, how do you usually choose your own convenience or comfort over the call of following Jesus? Thank you.